the last 50, 100 years have been really bad decades for pastoralism. Governments have neglected them. All investment went into agriculture, industrialization, infrastructure. Very, very little um, state funds went into uh, pastoralism. It was regarded as backward, something to be overcome. But the history of, of pastoralism in Somaliland and in many drylands of the world has been quite sustainable. It was a sustainable way of utilizing natural resources, creating ecosystems that were quite unique. The potential is there for, for meat production, for biodiversity, for giving people a livelihood in an area where they would, without animals, not be able to even survive, leave alone thrive. Uh, so I would say if policy takes note of that, if funding streams of development takes note of that, if carbon funding take, takes note of that, that is my biggest hope. If carbon funding takes note of the incredible service to the world, drylands do if they are protected, if their nomadic population is supported, I would say there is a quite bright future for pastoralism in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America. Millions and millions of carbon, metric tons of carbon could be stored for the rest of the world. This is a carbon sink that has no downsides. It has no disadvantages. It doesn't cost any carbon to, to be to start sequestering, it starts right away. You protect an area from day one, the area starts to sequester carbon without any concrete invested, steel invested, uh, machinery invested. No, it starts by human action, zero carbon investment for immediate carbon sequestering. That is what drylands do for us or could do for us. And I think the world has not really started to understand what 40% of the land of the global land surface are drylands. What these 40% could do for the rest of the world to sequester carbon. That was Mr. Thomas Hertz with his thought-provoking ideas about the drylands of Somaliland and what they mean to the world. This is Long Wang from the Water Channel. A very warm welcome to our podcast series about water, food, agriculture, and environmental sustainability. We feature stories and insights that reflect our present and are shaping our future. Somaliland, a small country with a remarkable history. Many of us, including myself, are not familiar with the people and geographies of this nation. But according to Thomas, the people and the vast drylands of Somaliland have something important for the rest of the world. Let us listen to his stories about the people and the nature of this country and how they offer a pure nature-based solution to cope with climate change. We will also get an update on the severe drought situation that is currently affecting life of about a million people living in the country. Today, I'm very happy to join Mr. Thomas Hertz an area manager of Wild Hunger Hefe, 
an international NGO from Germany. They are working to support people with food insecurity who are threatened by climate change-induced droughts. Dear Thomas, welcome back to the Water Channel and thank you very much for joining me today. Yeah, you're most welcome. I'm also looking forward to exchanging views uh, across, across the globe almost. I will start with a confession, Thomas, that I did not know the difference between Somalia and Somaliland. And thanks to you, I have learned that they are two entities. That is to say, I have not been to the country and know very little about this. Could you please describe Somaliland to our audience? Well, Somaliland is um, a part of the former Somalia um, until it cracked up after the fleeing of uh, the dictator Siad Bare. It was an English colony, whereas the other parts of Somalia were Italian colony. Italian colony. It is quite a normal country in, in, in many ways, functioning uh, at a very stable level. Not everything is perfect, not everything is very effective and efficient, but by and large, this is a, a real functioning country. Um, uh, if you arrive at the airport, it is very uncomplicated to enter Somaliland. You get a stamp in your passport, you pay your visa fee, and that's it. And you can walk wherever you want in the capital or elsewhere in the country without uh, fearing for your life. Uh, quite the opposite. The people are really friendly. Uh, a lot of curiosity because there's hardly any tourists here. Most tourism still mix, mixes up Somaliland with Somalia. Um, so it's also very easy to work here. There's universities, there's schools, uh, there's supermarkets, there's nice restaurants. You, will, you won't get a beer, but you will get excellent food and uh, very, very friendly welcome everywhere you go. It's a very dry country. It is one of the, the most important features. Somaliland does not have a permanent river. So large-scale irrigation is not possible. Um, it has also a beautiful landscape. Uh, in some areas, uh, quite high mountains. Uh, remains of forests can be seen. But uh, a lot of the country is um, grazing land. So you will see a lot of camels and goats and sheep. In some areas, cows. There's remains of wildlife. There's a very active cheetah conservation project going on. Uh, you will see gazelles and antelopes. Unfortunately, no more zebras, no more elephants, no more rhinos. All these have been extinct in the 20th century. But it's really worth a visit. Beautiful beaches. We have 800 kilometers of wonderful beaches. Very few hotels, so you will definitely not get into a, a tourist hotspot. You will see a very, uh, very un, unspoiled African country on a coast, half desert, half savanna, half dry mountain forest. No, it's uh, it's beautiful. That actually sounds very inviting. And now that we are comparing Somaliland and Somalia, 
I think we need a bit of a historic background here. We are here today with two different entities, and I wonder how has the history unfolded in this part of the world? Um, so Somaliland became independent from English colonial rule a couple of days before Somalia. And in the general euphoria of independence and national self-determination, Somalia agreed voluntarily to join Somalia with the capital Mogadishu. Somaliland's capital is Hargeisa. And then um, they were indeed one country that started 1961, 60 years ago, 61 years ago. And uh, it became very quickly clear that Somalia was not going to have a federal approach and deal with the northern province of Somaliland on eye level. So over the years, there was increasing frustration. The first prime minister of Somalia actually was Somalilander. His wife also Somalilander. Uh, but after the military coup by Siadbare, things went downwards and increasingly Mogadishu tried to rule over Somaliland and was marginalizing Somaliland in a way. Um, this led in the end, there was resistance by the Somaliland clans and this led to a very terrible, brutal civil war, mainly against the majority clan of the Issa. Uh, at the end of the 80s, uh, beginning 90s, Hargeisa was in ruins. There was almost no house standing. Um, Siad Bares Air Force bombarded the town from the nearby airport, from the Hargeisa airport, which was in the hands of the government. And millions of people fled, hundreds of thousands were killed. It was a terrible war. It had genocidal uh, characteristics that is still very strong in the memory of the Somalilanders. In 1991, yeah. after the breakdown of the Siad Bada regime in Somalia, um, the clan elders of Somaliland got together uh, in a number of conferences to stop uh, any continuation of hostilities in Somaliland. And eventually a nation was formed uh, and declared unilaterally its independence. That is modern day uh, Somaliland. So we are now, we as a nation, <laughs> I'm only a guest of course, we are now 31 years old. And apart from the first one or two years, there's been peace in Somaliland, whereas Somalia further descended into clan warfare, militia warfare here in Somaliland. It was quite stable and by and by a state developed and it is now a normal, a normal African country. Indeed, that sounds very much like any other country we would come across. And um, about the people and the resources, what are the main resources that nurture people's life? The, the main resource 
um, and also quite a reliable resource actually in, in, in such climatic uh, conditions is the animal. Humans cannot use uh, the acacia bush or the, the balanitis tree or other uh, vegetative resources. This is uh, for the animals. They turn it into animal protein. You can sell the animals, you can milk them, feed on the milk, you can sell the animals. So this is really the, the, the main, main resource of the country. There is some agriculture going on. Um, WHH, that is the short form of Welthungerhilfe. Um, we are promoting intensive vegetable cultivation for income generation, but also for nutrition diversity. And um, vegetables have to be irrigated in Somaliland. Um, and you can you can drain you can drain uh, uh, water from underground resources. Um, there is also in some areas there is rain-fed agriculture, mainly sorghum, that is a, a, a very drought-resistant grain that you don't have to irrigate. But um, nowadays, every second sorghum harvest is a failure. Uh, or, or very weak, hardly hardly worth the seed you put in the soil. And yeah. also the quality of soils is declining because the, the management of soils is not really uh, known to many Somali farmers. They don't know the, 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 the connection between fertilizing your fields with animal dung and the the better yields that you can get from there, not not only from the minerals of the fertilizer, but also from the from the water retention. If you put a lot of animal dung on your fields, the field can stay longer moist and can can hold more water to feed to feed the sorghum. Apart from sorghum, there is very little um, rain-fed crops. We have a few. Few farmers do beans, sunflower, mm, millet that is even more hardy, more drought resistant. But really, the dominant crop is sorghum. And the sorghum stalks are also used as an animal emergency feed. It's not very nutritious, but it keeps the animals going during a dry season. And Thomas, it is said that the pasture is more expensive than heat. And Thomas, I have. And Thomas, um, it is said that the pasture is more expensive than wheat. This is, of course, very surprising to me as someone from outside the dry land. What are the, why are the pasture and the animals so important to the people of Somaliland? Well, if you lose your animals, you are lost. You you are nothing in the in the in the open open savanna. You can only survive with your animals. Uh, sometimes the milk is even uh, something to keep you going, like water. Uh, it definitely gives you the energy. And um, over longer periods, nomads um, roam the area and they live off of the milk. And they eat very little meat, by the way, because it's too expensive to eat meat. You want to sell the animals or increase your herd. Uh, but the milk is definitely very important. 
but um, sadly many pastoralists who live close to a, a tarmac road or a major road or who live close to smaller cities or even larger cities they even stop drinking milk in the quantities they should take and sell a lot of their milk because from the milk they can buy more cereals to fill their stomach where and, and then the, the protein of the milk is missing for the children so you have protein deficiencies uh, in a population where you would expect at least the nomadic population and uh, yeah that's uh, an indicator for a decline in in um, the the pastoral system your description suggests a very strong reliance on the animals and at the same time hinting at vulnerability to dry conditions in fact i just learned that uh, there is a very severe drought going on right now in somaliland the government just released an emergency statement calling for support can you please update us about the drought situation? That is true. Uh, with all its beauty and its friendly people, currently uh, there is a tragedy going on uh, in terms of animals dying, people suffering, more and more villages don't have water anymore. Trying, they are trying to dig down uh, with their hand dug wells. Um, they have some of them still have some remaining uh, water that they have collected in 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 concrete cisterns but uh, in general the situation is getting worse by the day various uh, european donors have increased their funding um, or shifted from development to emergency funding there's lots of coordination meetings going on my own organization Welthungerhilfe is uh, trucking water to villages who have completely run out of water and would be abandoned um, would we not truck some water there but the distances from the functioning boreholes to the villages in need are getting bigger and the prices are going up because everybody wants trucked water my own house is supplied with water from a, a tanker every two weeks i get some few cubic meters so yeah uh, the, the situation is sinister and the outlook is not good we do have um, certain weather forecasts early warning systems installed and they some of them predict uh, below average rainy season the so-called goo rains, the goo rains start end of March, beginning of April. Uh, we have a month to go until we can hope to get some, some rain. But the last drop of rain I have seen was in September. Since then, I have not seen a drop of rain uh, on all my journeys uh, in Somaliland. Wow, that is very worrying how the rain has ceased to arrive to the land and the people for months. Does this happen very often? And how different is this drought from the past events? That, that is a bit difficult to say because it differs uh, from area to area, even from locality to locality. 
we've had in some areas of Somaliland uh, some very strange rains in the dry season. June, July, August. Uh, in some areas not. So those areas who have received the unseasonal rains, they are still quite stable, largely in the west of the country. In the east of the country, uh, these unseasonal rains have not happened uh, and they have the same problem with the complete failure of the gur, uh, no, of the dare rain, sorry. The autumn rains are the dare rains. If anybody listens who knows the terminology, he will say, no, no, that's wrong. The, the gur rains are in spring and the dare rains are in autumn. So there's areas where you haven't had any rain maybe for a year. And those are, of course, very, very hard hit and in a desperate situation. The last really bad drought that was also called uh, a drought of the century that was in 1916-17, starting 15, expanding into 1918, uh, 2018, sorry. This was also a very bad drought. I arrived in the country just at towards the end of it, and I could, I could see how desperate people were, uh, mainly getting water and fodder for their animals. And so my land is not, uh, doesn't have a, a big buffer or a big, um, how would I say, the population is not that they could then just sell a few animals uh, and and do fairly well. The resources are already overstretched. Um, one third to, to almost half of the children have signs of permanent long-term malnutrition. They're too short for their, for their age or they're too light for their height where various forms of malnutrition, also micronutrient deficiencies. Um, many, many women are anemic when they are pregnant. They have, um, we have the one of the highest maternal death rates uh, in Somaliland. The only thing that makes, makes uh, Somaliland a, a little bit better than Somalia is that we don't have a conflict. Every agency, every relief organization can freely reach every village in the country, except for a very few hot spots with some clan problems, but it's really exceptional. I would say 95% of the country is reachable uh, with relief and also before that with, with development aid. That's our big advantage. But uh, Somaliland is by any means a quite poor country. Thank you very much, Thomas, for a very comprehensive description of the droughts. I suppose it would be very relevant to get a helicopter view of the challenges in the country. Apart from the ongoing droughts, what are some of the long-term fundamental challenges that Somaliland had been facing and is still trying to deal with? Well, there's one word, water. And that is the key to everything. And so Myland has not been able to retain enough water in the country 
to recharge the wells, to recharge the soils, to feed the vegetation, to, 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 to water the animals and provide drinking water sufficiently for the population. That is the national, the national uh, problem number one, water scarcity, and the national objective number one, retaining water. And then the use, the utilization of the water. Many of the water sources that are maybe a little bit more sophisticated, like boreholes, the deep, deep uh, wells, machine drilled wells, um, don't function. Uh, many of the berkats, these cemented cisterns, are leaking, they don't hold water. And uh, many of the pumps are dilapidated um, or solar pumps are not properly installed. So the technical maintenance of these systems is, is, is really important. Um, another huge problem that we do not address and others also do not address is the widespread addiction to chat. That is a, a, a chewing drug. It is also known from Yemen, for example, where men spend many hours of the day chewing and they get into a mild uh, form of, of um, how do you say, euphoric, euphoric feeling, uh, making big plans. Um, so a lot of working time is lost and also a lot of financial resources of the family is lost. An addicted uh, uh, chat chewer that, that who chews every day would use between six and eight dollars or ten dollars every day. That is a lot of money for these families. Most families don't have that money available. So there is alternative income is generated by, for example, felling the, the valuable fodder trees and making charcoal. The charcoal market is booming. Or selling animals that should be kept to keep the herd size. Um, we have also terrible effects of this. Like increasingly very young girls are married off. Um, apparently the, the age of marriage is sinking. 16, 15, 14, which has very bad effects for the girls, of course. Um, so environmental destruction is very much linked to a widespread addiction to chat. Figures are not really known. Some say 60%, some say 90%. It's probably in somewhere in between um, of the male population. Very few women are addicted. So more and more of the the work and income generation is uh, handed, handled by the women. At the same time, women have very little decision making over family resources. Um, men are still the decision makers, but they are less and less able to make good decisions because their their thinking is very short term. Where do I get quickly cash to buy my chat? It's not different from uh, from a heroin addict uh, in in uh, Amsterdam or, or Berlin. Very short term thinking. Uh, you can even steal from your own family members. 
to get your next shot. And people do destructive things. They know they do destructive things, but the short-term thinking, the urge to have this drug is very strong. And what about the rest of the natural resource base in the country? Is it in good state? Well, with, with um, a big number of natural savanna fodder trees being lost due to charcoal, um, there, there is an increase in, in um, pressure on, on other plants. And um, the vegetation as such is reducing. Uh, the rain has, can have a stronger destructive effect on the, on the topsoil. And a lot more water, instead of infiltrating, is getting lost, running off, causing huge um, flooding at the lower end of the river basins. And um, that leads, on one hand, to, to a, a further destruction of rangeland because of erosion. Uh, it's, it's a vicious circle of more and more water running to the sea, being lost, and less and less water retained. So it's a vicious, the less vegetation you have, the higher the erosion. The higher the erosion, the less, less vegetation. In the end, there is not enough fodder for the animals and not enough uh, vegetation for the whole ecological system and for water retention of the soils. We, we, are, we are trying to reverse this circle by offering uh, support to close certain areas for charcoal making and for grazing so that they can recover. And that's working uh, surprisingly well, but you have to offer something in exchange. If some areas are taken out of grazing and out of charcoal making, people need an uh, alternative income. And we do this by offering cash for work. Uh, to erect these anti-erosion structures. So we not only do we close the area and allow the vegetation to recover, we're also supporting uh, uh, the vegetation in these areas by retaining water through very simple stone structures. And these are many, many hundred kilometers that we have been doing in these areas of small erosion ditches or small stone walls or large check dams, handmade by stone, dry masonry, uh, stone structures, check dams to stop the deepening of the gullies. That water is also retained in the gullies. And the effect is quite amazing. If you have just a bit of rain, these areas are surprisingly green and uh, the, the, the grass and the bushes are recovering at a quite surprising speed. And that is then encouragement for the people to further protect. We introduce honey, uh, beekeeping, a very, very expensive commodity, honey. Honey prices in Somaliland are just as high as in Europe. A very, very traditional, um, uh, much, much sought for present. If you go to visit your parents-in-law, if you go to visit your other uh, clan uh, friends, uh, you bring honey, you are most welcome. So we introduce beekeeping, uh, a good source of income. And then gradually we, we um, start using uh, the vegetation, the recovered vegetation, 
uh, either commercially, you can sell grass, uh, you can sell fruits, you can sell um, limited amounts of timber or firewood, so that the recovered uh, vegetation has not only a, an ecological effect, but also an economical effect. I'm very happy to hear that many meaningful actions are being taken to reverse the degradation of natural resources. Now, I have just a very quick question on the uh, working together side of things. I suppose this is a very important aspect as you are working at uh, regional scales and have hundreds of kilometers of built structures in place. How do you convince and motivate people to join forces and to change their destructive practices? Well, I think first of all, uh, seeing is believing. We're taking villagers from, from one village to another where this protection has already shown results. And they talk about their experience with having more grass, uh, having, more, uh, having more income from the honey. Probably the water source at the lower end of this protected area all of a sudden has nine months water per year and not only four because the whole environment, the whole watershed is, is feeding this well. Women will probably talk about uh, how they can collect wild fruits or wild vegetables uh, to, to enrich their diet. And, and of course, the cash for work is, a, is, is the Kickstarter. That is income that has not been there before. It's a direct, a direct relief. Um, whenever there is a humanitarian uh, cash available or humanitarian food, uh, we try to link it to a further improvement of the water retention in these protected sites. And in the end, <coughs> once they are convinced that this is also good for them, they designate an area, usually they're not very big, they can be only 10 hectares or 20 hectares, to try it out. Uh, some have 100 hectares, the biggest one we have is only 200 hectares. And that's not a big piece of land for pastoral uh, conditions. But they experience what protection means, and we make a contract with them. They are responsible for the protection. We don't pay guards, or we definitely don't pay a fence. It must be community, uh, community driven um, wish to protect these areas because it attracts cash for work, it attracts other development activities, it improves the water source. And uh, people have in mind once there is a bad drought, they can open these areas for temporary grazing, very controlled, very temporary after the grass has shed the seeds. And we're doing this at the moment. We are opening several of our protected sites for uh, emergency grazing to keep the animals alive. That is maybe once, once the pastoralists have experienced that such a fodder reserve is life-saving for many animals, that is a very, very strong argument. But you have to experience it first. In the beginning, it is the cash for work and the beekeeping and the water. And then gradually, people experience what it means to have a protected sites. And all of them, every single village is begging us, please help us to enlarge our sites. We want to have more 
erosion control measures. We want this area to be bigger, that more animals can, can have their drought relief. So at the moment, we don't do that. We first want to have these current protected sites really well developed, really well established. And people, people uh, uh, punish those who are perpetrating, uh, uh, who are transgressing these boundaries with the animals. Uh, they they retain the animals, and they and the the owner has to pay a big ransom, very expensive. If he continues to transgress the boundaries, they take them to the police. There have been several villagers who are spending weeks or months uh, in police custody as a punishment for their breaching the agreement. And people are laughing and very proud about that. I, I've talked with one guy who was four months in prison and he said, eh, it was a terrible time, it was a terrible time. I will never do that again, I will never do that again. Yeah. And now yeah. he's laughing about it, but now he's part of the community. He's really, he believes, yes, we should all protect this land together. And again, um, looking at the big picture, apart from the benefits to the locals, what do these protected areas offer to the region, the country, or perhaps the world? As I described before, it is a, uh, if well maintained and if large enough, it can be a very effective fodder reserve for the drought. What people learn in these protected areas, they can extrapolate to other areas. Um, they, they learn how destructive the charcoal burning really is. They they learn how how quickly, how relatively quickly, an area recovers, vegetation recovers, and uh, they learn how what measures can be applied to have to speed up this recovery, to support this recovery. I think um, that we are in the. We could be in the beginning of a trend where pastoralists who have always been just um, mining vegetation, or they, they have been using the vegetation. A pastoralist normally doesn't give anything back like a farmer. Um, that pastoralists start to understand that with climate change, with population increase, uh, with some overgrazing, but also with the destruction that has been done, that they have to be giving something back to the land. That is a, a very unusual thought for a pastoralist uh, who is very opportunistic in the way interacting with nature. The, the, most, the most thing that was done as management was really to, to stop grazing in certain areas for some time. But that was maybe for a season, maybe two, but not for a longer duration. I think this, this mindset is, is changing or can change. And in the coming years, we want to have protected sites in every single district of this country. We're talking with donors, we're talking with the government, we want to have this in the national plan that protected sites as a pilot in every single district is is introduced so people learn and people see that with if we help together 
They with their work, we with our cash. They with their protection, we with our beekeeping experts. Uh, they with digging a shallow well, we providing a solar pumping system. If we work together, uh, we can make this land a lot more productive and in the way the communities want it. Not by introducing agriculture in an area where agriculture doesn't make any sense. Uh, or not by grabbing land and building a big pineapple farm. No, by doing the traditional way of using this land, which is, by the way, the most ecologically appropriate way of using this land. But trying to avoid mistakes and trying to add some new ideas. And these areas, don't forget, they're doing the world a huge favor. If, if land is protected, it can store a lot more carbon than the animals would later eat. Because 60, 70 or 80% of the biomass is in the roots. This carbon is there forever or for a very long time. Uh, they go very deep. Uh, a root that is uh, developing in 10 meters, 20 meters. This carbon will never see the light again in, 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 in many lifetimes. Indeed, very fair. There is a lot of potential for the global carbon storage. What makes this carbon sink very interesting is that uh, it is safe and clean. I suppose we can agree that uh, the restoring and protecting of the drylands represent a pure nature-based solution. And on this note, you recently published a very interesting blog. I would quote a piece which I find very interesting. It reads like this. The 20 billion euros that a nuclear power plant costs, and after planning and repayment of CO2 investments, could protect 27 million hectares and enhance vegetation, store 675 million tons of carbon, and ensure a dignified life for 9 million people. Most of them are pastoralists now and not 20 years from now. Can you share some thoughts behind these lines, uh, Thomas? Yeah, look, I'm not a scientist. I'm not an economy, uh, an energy economist or whatever. I'm, I, I was trying to, to get figures together from literature as good as I can, besides all my management work here running projects. So this has to be taken with a pinch of salt. But one, one thing is very clear. Um, the, the, the carbon savings that you have with, uh, let's go 20 steps down an SUV, SUV and the carbon sinks that you can produce uh, by area protection. This is absurd, absurd figures. Uh, how, it's, I don't know, 500 times, a thousand times more efficient to store carbon in drylands than to save CO2 emissions with a nuclear power plant. This is a com completely outrageous uh, uh, relation, re relation between uh, an extremely inefficient way of saving carbon and an extremely efficient way of storing carbon. Now you can't, a nuclear power station produces electricity. Uh, a well-protected rangeland produces meat and income. Well, these are two different things, but what is more important to save 
to create a dignified life for millions of pastoralists or to have a dubious power source for millions of Germans. You know, this is not very rational what I'm saying, but if you look at the relationship between, between saving carbon emissions or sequestering carbon, um, the, the, the disparity is absurd how much cheaper and how much more side benefits you have in terms of livelihoods for poor people, in terms of water storage, in terms of biodiversity, in terms of preserving cultures and also avoiding conflict. Um, disenfranchised rural populations who are settling in towns, in slums, they are uh, tremendous source of violence and criminality and extremism. So if we would rethink where we put our resources as a, a decision makers with a with a global view, I would go for drylands and carbon sequestration. <laughs> yes, I would also go for drylands, I think. It is not only for the people of Somaliland, not only for the dryland themselves. I am convinced that the people and the dryland system are and can do the world a huge favor in terms of global warming up, in terms of looking around for safe, ethical and profitable solutions to capture our carbon in the air. The perspective is bright. Before we wrap up, I would like to ask if you would like to share your vision on what you and uh, Wealth Hunger Hefer would like to do next. We want to expand our experience to larger areas uh, from a meager 1,200 hectares that we are protecting at the moment with the communities. Let it be 5,000, 10,000 hectares. Let it be not only WHH, let it be 10 international organizations who do that. And let's have a million hectares protected uh, in the next five years, six years. The Ministry of Environment uh, is, is all in for it. Uh, the minister is a wonderful woman, uh, uh, an environmental activist herself. She would love to see this coming. Um, in the Ministry of Planning, in the Ministry of Water, they're all convinced that we, we would be doing the right thing. And we are working together to develop also policies, uh, plans, maybe even, even uh, legal uh, development uh, to protect the rangelands better and with them the people who live there and with them the whole nation who needs their pastoral folks uh, making use of these areas and not coming as slum dwellers to Hargeisa. Yeah, there, so there, there, is, there is a momentum in the government and in many, many other governments to, to make this happen, but it's all going too slow for my taste. <laughs> I'm impatient. I, I would see more speed on that. We want to, we are going into schools now with our local partner, uh, Candlelight. We are going in schools and teaching the, the, the children what it means to stop erosion, to plant a tree, to fill a gully, to protect a little patch of grass, um, learning life skills, which are climate change resilience skills these days. What was before, uh, uh, much more about hygiene and nutrition. It's increasingly getting into uh, 
climate change resilience. How can we withstand climate change and environmental destruction? So that is one one area where we want to to work the schools, but we also want to help people to solve their water problems here and now um, with the existing recharge uh, that water sources are more stable, more technically sound, that communities can manage their water systems quite regardless of the environmental um, uh, improvements or degradation around them, because this is what people need every single day, water, and the animals need it every single day. So we cannot only look in the long term and have these lofty dreams of a, of a greening of some island. We also have to have blue dreams uh, and blue plans uh, to get water to the people. Yeah. And if need be, by truck. That is the least sustainable, the worst case. But if need be, we truck the water to the villages. A very comprehensive yet clear and practical action plan. A bright and motivated future perspective is always a good place to stop talking and start doing. Thank you very much, dear Thomas, for joining me today and for sharing your wisdom about the dry land, about the Somaliland people, about how to work with the people for a better, more resilient future. I learned a lot today and I'm sure our audience would also very much appreciate your story. Thank you very much, dear Thomas. Yeah, thank you. And uh, my thanks go to you, but also to my wonderful colleagues who uh, are inspiring me every day, who are doing actually the work while I'm I'm uh, uh, sitting most of the time behind my laptop. But those people who are going to the field, uh, they're doing a fantastic job, be it in water, be it in schools, be it in the protected areas. That is what gives me a lot of hope. There's wonderfully motivated people here in many organizations. Thank you very much, Thomas, for your kind words. I will try my best to make sure that the credits will also go to the colleagues and partners that you are working with. I would also like to thank our audience for listening to our podcast on the Water Channel. And uh, until next time.